A landmark gun control case is before the Supreme Court. A law currently prevents domestic violence offenders from owning a gun. Is that constitutional? A legal expert says this case falls within an ongoing national debate. NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards reports. Both conservative and liberal Supreme Court justices on Tuesday appear to be leaning toward keeping a gun control measure. The gun ban applies to anyone under a domestic violence restraining order. Under a 1994 federal law, people who have been ordered to stay away from their spouses or partners are prohibited from possessing a firearm. The case currently before the court involves a Texas man, Zaki Rahimi, who was accused of hitting his girlfriend during an argument and later threatening to shoot her. Rahimi's attorney agrees that people who commit domestic violence should not have guns. The question is, does a person with a domestic violence restraining order against them still have a Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms? One expert told NTD that this case falls somewhere in the middle. You have on one side a serious national issue, domestic violence and firearms within the home that we all know is serious, but at the same time, uh, you know, the, the, the constitutional right to keep and bear arms is a fundamental right that's within the Bill of Rights, and individuals have uh, the authority to exercise that right unless they are convicted of a crime, usually. So this case really falls squarely in the middle of those two camps, and it'll be interesting to see how the Supreme Court rules in this case. When detectives went looking for Rahimi in his Texas home in January of 2021, they found a loaded 45 caliber Glock a loaded 308 semi-automatic rifle, and a protective order for domestic abuse. Rahimi had already been arrested on charges of aggravated assault with a firearm in a separate case. He's now claiming that the 1994 law infringes on his Second Amendment rights. The lower court agreed, saying that while he was hardly a model citizen, the law afforded those rights to all Americans. The Biden administration's lawyer argued that the prohibition is in line with the long-standing practice of disarming dangerous people. How should the court define dangerous? Attorney Joshua Thompson says the bottom line is this. Either the statute is going to be held unconstitutional, in which case the Supreme Court will ultimately be saying that you need to afford people more process, you need to have more uh, evidence that an individual is dangerous before you can disarm them of the or of their Second Amendment fundamental right. Or the Supreme Court is going to say domestic violence is such a huge issue in this country, and there are historical analogs, that uh, this statute does survive that heightened scrutiny. The court will make a decision by the end of the term next summer. Arlene Richards, NTD News. It's now been one month since Hamas terrorists conducted a surprise attack on innocent civilians in Israel's border communities and at a music festival. A survivor tells her story. NTD's Jason Perry has the update. Please be warned that it's disturbing. This woman was working as a bartender at the Deadly Music Festival in Israel one month ago on October 7th. That's the day when Hamas launched a surprise terrorist attack, killing over 1,400 innocent civilians in Israel. She explained that she and her friend were surrounded by terrorists, and one of them said in Arabic that they had two hostages. However, her friend couldn't stop crying. I saw that they are getting agitated, that he was crying, so I told him to calm down, don't cry. 
It'll be all right. At that time, I was simply speaking to God, saying, there's nothing more I can do. It's in your hands now. Then she said a terrorist murdered her friend because he wouldn't stop crying. They were about to put me in a vehicle. The vehicle wouldn't start, and then there was this confusion among them. Their plan had changed. Then the terrorist began arguing over whether to kill her, and one of them said she could go. She ran away and hid under the stage. While I'm lying under the stage, I see that they're shooting at people to make sure they're all dead. So the body lying next to me, they shot him in the head. I took the blood and wiped it on my face, and I simply lay still like they were, to seem dead. She said she waited there for about two hours until the Israeli army came. It's now been one month since Hamas terrorists raided the music festival in several Israeli border communities, murdering families and taking about 240 hostages, according to Israeli officials. Bring them home. Bring them home. On Tuesday, people in different parts of the world have been commemorating the one-month anniversary, including London. I think the, everything that's happening in Gaza is tragic, but I don't know what the alternatives are. I'm, every innocent life lost is an absolute tragedy. I, I don't know how you talk to Hamas. You have to show you're strong enough and, and, and do whatever you can to force uh, Hamas, which is a, a terror organization, literally a terror organization. And actually, we need to free Gaza from Hamas. Hamas Gaza people are very good, probably, most of them. Uh, just uh, Hamas control them. Also on Tuesday, Gazan residents were seen walking south after Israel gave civilians in Gaza City a four-hour window to leave. We don't know to where we are going. We are heading to south as they told us to do so. We are walking and don't know where we will go, to go to schools, to sleep at streets, to sleep at people's places. Only God knows. On Tuesday, Israel's defense minister said Gaza City is the biggest terrorist base ever built. And he explained that there are miles of tunnels under the city used to facilitate terrorist attacks. The IDF reported that they are now fighting in the heart of Gaza City. Jason Perry, NTD News. A cry for help on Capitol Hill. Families of Hamas hostages tell their stories and ask the U.S. to do more to rescue their loved ones. NTD's Melina Weiskamp has the story. We don't have a list of the hostages. We don't know their condition. I, I don't have anything. So I need your help. In October 7, my life stopped when my two younger brothers, Gali and Ziv Berman, were kidnapped. Hamas is believed to be holding hostage a total of around 240 people since their initial attack in Gaza one month ago. Just four hostages have been released and one has been rescued. But the vast majority remain, with little details known. Hamas took them. The youngest said, I'm too young, don't take me. There are over 30 kids. The youngest of them is only 10 months old. And again, we do not know the condition of any of them. The Biden administration has called for a pause in fighting to allow humanitarian aid to get through and for civilians to get out. While many support the idea of pauses, some Democrats are critical of calls even within their own party for a ceasefire before the hostages are released. And the fact that there are people advocating for a ceasefire without discussing that the hostages must be returned 
makes no sense and runs completely counter to our American values. Israel's prime minister is opposing a ceasefire until all the hostages are released. And on a related note, some House Republicans are now eager to make clear that the scant few voices there are coming from Congress that are critical of the state of Israel are not representative of the entire body. There are two competing resolutions to censure Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib for critical remarks on the state of Israel. One, they did take a procedural vote on today. Democrats tried to table this, although that failed with one Democrat joining with Republicans on it, setting up an actual vote on the resolution, an up or down vote for some point likely tomorrow. Now, this resolution specifically was introduced by Congressman Rich McCormick from Georgia. It accuses Tlaib of promoting false narratives in relation to the Hamas attack and also calling for the destruction of the state of Israel. Now, like we mentioned, there's also a separate resolution coming from Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. This is her second attempt to try to censure Tlaib and Democrats again tonight will try to table this. We'll see whether or not that fails or passes. If it does end up failing, then this will also set up a second vote for this separate resolution as well. So we could very well see Rashida Tlaib being censured twice. Tiff, back to you. A California Jewish man has died in what may be a homicide. What happened at the dueling Israel and Palestinian protests? NTD's Christina Corona has more on the story. Paul Kessler died after being hit in the head at pro-Israeli and pro-Palestinian rallies Sunday. The protests were held simultaneously at the intersection of Westlake Boulevard and Thousand Oaks Boulevard. 69-year-old Paul Kessler, a Thousand Oaks resident, who was lying on the ground. Mr. Kessler was conscious and responsive. The sergeant observed what he was, saw was bleeding from the head and mouth. During the investigation, at the scene, deputies determined that the altercation with Mr. Kessler, he fell backward and struck his head on the ground. What exactly transpired prior to Mr. Kessler falling backward isn't crystal clear right now. The suspect was identified, willingly remained at the scene, and was interviewed by deputies. The suspect further stated that he was in one of the reporting parties who called 911 requesting medical attention for Mr. Kessler. Multiple witnesses at the scene were interviewed. However, there were conflicting statements about the altercation and who the aggressor was. Some witnesses were pro-Palestine, while others were pro-Israel. Sheriff Freihoff said Kessler remained conscious while being transported to Los Robles Regional Medical Center on November 5th. Uh, Mr. Kessler's condition uh, continued to deteriorate and death was pronounced on November 6th at uh, 1.10 a.m. Dr. Young says an autopsy found non-lethal injuries to the left side Kessler's face. Internal injuries include skull fractures and brain swelling, which typically result from a fall. The cause of death has been certified as blunt force head trauma. The manner of death is homicide. Detectives obtained a search warrant for the suspect and his residence Monday. He was released at 6.15 p.m. after the search finished. As of Tuesday afternoon, there had been no arrests in the case. Authorities are asking anyone who witnessed or has knowledge of the incident to contact Detective Stump at 805-384-4745. Anonymous tips can be sent to Crime Stoppers at 800-222-8477. Christina Corona, NTD News, Los Angeles. 
Amid the war in the Middle East, the Biden administration is highlighting the need to keep a focus on the Indo-Pacific. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is visiting Japan and South Korea. NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao has more. Following a crisis visit to the Middle East, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is now shifting the focus of his intense diplomacy efforts from the Middle East now to the Indo-Pacific. For yesterday and today, he's been meeting with counterparts from the G7 democracies in Japan, where in addition to the ongoing wars in the Middle East and, of course, in Ukraine, topics such as China's economic coercion toward other Asian countries are also at the top of their agenda. Here's what Secretary Blinken told his Japanese counterparts during a meeting today. Watch. Uh, enduring support for Ukraine, uh, the work that we're doing together to combat uh, economic coercion in terms of trilateral cooperation with the Republic of Korea, all of these are, are vital. Blinken's also visiting South Korea on both Wednesday and Thursday. And today I asked the State Department during its briefing about China's economic coercion specifically towards South Korea, in which ongoing efforts are being done by the Chinese embassy in South Korea to try to block an American performing arts company, Shen Yun, from performing in South Korea. The classical Chinese dance show, which is widely popular around the world, is banned in China due to its portrayal of some human rights persecutions in mainland China. And the State Department told me that they continue to be concerned about such practices by Beijing to use this economic leverage to try to pressure our democratic allies. Watch. Does it remain a concern by the State Department that in such incidents like this, China is using its economic pressure to influence the freedom of expression in an ally country? Of course, continues to remain of concern. Uh, the PRC has a very clear track record of using um, economic coercion and otherwise in a, uh, in a, in a wide array of countries. Uh, this is, of course, something that we're going to continue to address. Meanwhile, President Biden is set to meet with China's Xi Jinping next week during the APEC summit in San Francisco. Of course, it remains to be seen how issues such as human rights abuses by China as well as China's increasingly aggressive actions toward other countries, including espionage activities here in the U.S., will be discussed. Back to you. Leaders from around the world, including President Biden and Chinese leader Xi Jinping, will soon be gathering in San Francisco. Thousands of government heads and CEOs will also attend the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Conference. Here's NTD's David Zhang with more on what to expect. 20,000 attendees representing 21 member economies will be in the city of San Francisco. But what are the highlights other than heightened security, massive road closures and protests? I think it's particularly significant this year because with the tension between the United States and China, the opportunity to have President Xi meet with President Biden is a very important one. The White House announced the last week that U.S. President Biden will meet with the Chinese leader Xi Jinping, making the first time the two leaders will speak in person since a year ago. Chairman Xi is facing a lot of pressure of a dunk downturn economy in China. He wants American business to, uh, to go to China to make more investment, and he also wants Americans to buy more products from China. Uh, so that's why he's coming. Both sides have been showing signs of easing up the tensions. As I've said since the beginning of my administration, we seek competition, not conflict with China. We're not looking for a new Cold War. 
Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is also scheduled to host Chinese Vice Premier He Lifeng for two days for talks in San Francisco before the start of APEC summit. This all comes on the heels of California Governor Newsom's recent week-long visit to China and meeting with the Chinese President Xi. The key discussions of this year's summit will center around trade, technology transfer, and economic development. The United States is very concerned about technology transfer to China. The United States has been very aggressive in pushing restrictions on semiconductors, and that's been a very important issue for us because we're very concerned about the transfer of technology to China, potentially for defense purposes. But others are skeptical of China's position in the economic sector. More than 90% of Americans have negative opinions about China. So I don't think she is going to be very successful to attract a lot of investments to China. While APEC is intended to be an economic forum, political topics do come up during discussions among world leaders, especially when international tensions run high with the current Russia-Ukraine war and conflicts in the Middle East. Meanwhile, San Francisco is aggressively clearing homeless encampments, increasing drug-related arrests to improve the city's image as delegations arrive. Welcome back. Voters today will cast ballots to choose governors in Kentucky and Mississippi, decide legislative control in Virginia and New Jersey, and determine whether the Ohio State Constitution should protect abortion access. NTD's Daniel Monahan breaks down some key races. Off-year votes get less attention than presidential and midterm congressional elections. But Republicans and Democrats will be watching some major races and key issues for clues about the 2024 elections. First up are races for governor. In Kentucky, Democratic Governor Andy Beshear is running for re-election against Republican State Attorney General Daniel Cameron in the typically conservative state. Cameron is challenging Bashir by focusing on public safety, learning loss from school closures during the COVID pandemic, and legislation opposing cross-sex procedures on minors, which Bashir vetoed. In Mississippi, Republican Governor Tate Reeves is running for re-election against Democrat Brandon Presley, a second cousin of singer Elvis Presley. Reeves has accused Presley of being backed by out-of-state liberals. Presley is running on the promise of tax cuts and expanding Medicaid. Turning to the legislature, all 40 seats in Virginia's Senate and 100 seats in the House of Delegates are up for grabs. Democrats are fighting to hold or widen their 22 to 18 advantage in the Senate and win a majority in the House where Republicans have a 52 to 48 edge. Democrats have focused on abortion access as Republicans have promised to pass a 15-week abortion ban if they take control of the legislature while Republicans have focused on crime and public safety. In New Jersey, all seats in the General Assembly and Senate are in play. Republicans have gained ground in the deep blue state since 2021 when they flipped seven seats. They are campaigning on issues ranging from the economy to parental rights. Over to ballot initiatives, Ohio voters will decide whether to enshrine abortion access rights in the state constitution and on legalizing marijuana for recreational use. And finally, to the courts. The race for a new state Supreme Court justice in Pennsylvania will not alter the liberal tilt of the state's highest court, but could have future implications for abortion access and election laws in the state. Planned Parenthood has endorsed Democratic candidate Daniel McCaffrey for the 10-year position. 
while pro-life groups are backing the Republican candidate Carolyn Carluccio. Democrats have a 4-2 majority in the partisan state court, with one vacant seat to be filled in this election. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. The third GOP presidential primary debate takes place tomorrow in Miami. The field of presidential hopefuls taking part is down to five candidates. They are Governor Ron DeSantis, Chris Christie, Nikki Haley, Senator Tim Scott, and Vivek Ramaswamy. Former President Trump will skip the debate and hold a concurrent rally in Hialeah, Florida, which is near Miami. The Republican National Committee set new qualification requirements for this debate. Candidates had to receive at least 4% in two national polls and get donations from a minimum of 70,000 people. North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum didn't qualify for this debate. And former Vice President Mike Pence recently suspended his campaign. The RNC has raised the requirements for the next debate, which may narrow the field even more. Right after the debate, tune in to catch NTD's news analysis from 10 to 11 p.m. Eastern Time. I'll be there covering the debate in depth with special guests and reporters. We'll also be hearing from voters. You can catch it on TV or you can also watch at NTD.com and on Epic TV. We hope you'll join us. House Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan says the federal government and so-called disinformation experts worked with big tech before the 2020 election to censor speech online. Jordan says the House panel report released yesterday is a bombshell. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg tells us why. An interim staff report titled The Weaponization of Disinformation, Pseudo-Experts and Bureaucrats, How the Federal Government Partnered with Universities to Censor Americans' Free Speech, was released by the House Judiciary Committee on Monday. Jordan called out the Department of Homeland Security, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, the State Department, and academics at Stanford University. He says hundreds of secret reports uncovered a joint censorship effort with big tech before the 2020 presidential election and that communications showed true information, jokes, and opinions were targeted. Jordan says a partnership was set up called the Election Integrity Partnership, or EIP, and shared an email from an EIP member stating it was created at the request of DHS and CISA. The report calls it a consortium of disinformation and says pressure was largely directed one way. Republicans and conservatives were largely being flagged with misinformation, while false information from Democrats and liberals went largely untouched. The report called it a pseudoscience being used to frequently target communities and individuals with opposing views of current narratives. Some of the posts flagged were from then-President Trump, North Carolina Senator Tom Tillis, Representatives Thomas Massey and Marjorie Taylor Greene, Fox News host Sean Hannity, and satirical media site The Babylon Bee, along with posts from other media organizations and everyday Americans. The report says the federal government's effort was to censor Americans engaged in core political speech leading up to the 2020 election under CISA's Countering Foreign Influence Task Force. CISA Executive Director Brandon Wales told Fox News the agency does not and has never censored speech or facilitated censorship. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. In a rare move, the special counsel overseeing the Hunter Biden investigation testified behind closed doors in Congress today. David Weiss insisted that he had the ultimate authority in the years-long case. Weiss's interview with the House Judiciary Committee is the first time a special counsel has ever testified to lawmakers in the middle of a probe. He told lawmakers that he is and has been the decision-maker on this case. 
The prosecutor added that politics played no part in his decision-making, but also that he doesn't make decisions in a vacuum. He said he is required to follow Justice Department guidelines and processes, as well as federal law. Following the meeting, House Judiciary GOP posted a portion of the transcript on X, saying Vice didn't have ultimate authority in the Hunter Biden case. Trouble for President Biden as he seeks re-election next year. A new poll shows his approval ratings slipping this month to its lowest level since April. The poll was by Reuters and Ipsos over two days ending on Saturday. It showed 39% of respondents approving of Biden's performance as president, matching April's low. Biden's approval rating was 40% in October and 42% in September. The rating has remained below 50% since August 2021. And this month's rating was close to the lowest levels of his presidency. That was 36% seen in mid-2022. And what issues do voters care about? 20% of those polled said the economy was the top concern. By comparison, 9% selected crime and 8% cited war and foreign conflicts. Investing retirement plans into ESG funds. A financial expert tells Congress American pension funds are being used to strengthen the Chinese Communist Party and Iran. NTD's Arian Postar has the highlights from today's hearing. The goal of ESG is not better financial performance. It is to force compliance to one view. The House Ways and Means Committee on Tuesday investigating retirement plans being invested into ESG funds. ESG stands for Environmental, Social and Governance. In the past, pension managers had to aim for maximum profit over everything else. However, in 2022, the Biden administration changed the rules, saying they may consider climate change and other environmental, social and governance factors in selecting retirement investments. Numbers now show such investments do bring less returns. They could have had 11.5% return, but they've only had a 4.5% return. That's not keeping pace with inflation. This witness, Jason Isaac, former Texas state representative and director of Life Powered, says such investments do more damage besides hurting returns. Isaac says ESG funds directly play into the hands of the Chinese Communist Party, going as far as to call it the China ESG agenda. He says that as soon as rules changed in 2022, asset managers pulled their money out of American energy production. And they now use those same funds to instead invest in energy production in China. And Isaac explains the consequences of that. Take a look. And we're seeing dollars flow into Iran from China to the tune of 50 to 80 billion dollars because of the ESG agenda. And guess who's going to be buying the refined products that China is producing because they've expanded their refining capacity? The United States will be buying jet fuel, diesel and home heating oil made from Iranian oil that is funding this war on terror. Republican Congresswoman Claudia Tenney asked another one of the witnesses what people can do to counter the ESG trend. Each of us as consumers need to have our voices heard when we see companies politicizing their business like we saw with Bud Light and Target, that we don't patronize those businesses. Democrats at the hearing often criticized Republicans for what they called wasting time on a hearing about ESG. They said there are more important topics to be discussed right now, such as funding the government, for example. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. 
As we grapple with a rise in anti-Semitic attacks in the United States and beyond, we spoke with an expert on the rights of Jewish people. What are the forces behind the rise in anti-Semitism, and what can people do about it? Joining us now is Gerard Felitti, Senior Counsel at the Lawfare Project. His organization provides legal services to protect the civil and human rights of the Jewish people worldwide. Gerard Felitti, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. To begin, we're seeing a rise in anti-Semitism. A 69-year-old Jewish man was just killed in California. Now, you're a human rights attorney. How likely are we to see justice in this situation, and what would that justice be? Well, I think we're watching this situation very carefully to make sure that justice is carried out. What that would look like is an arrest and prosecution for hate crimes. This is a murder that was motivated by anti-Semitism. So we expect there to be a murder charge with an enhanced penalty for it being a hate crime. And what we expect is speedy justice. We, we don't want to see delays or procrastinations or equivocations. We expect the sheriff's department to work with the prosecutor's office to get that conviction quickly. And now a report is saying that anti-Semitism has gone up 330 percent globally compared to last year. What's behind this? Well, what's behind it is massive support for what Hamas has done in Israel. We have seen pro-Palestinian and pro-Hamas demonstrations around the world that are literally inciting and calling for violence. We've seen hundreds of thousands of people different places in the world mobilizing, and this creates an atmosphere that's hostile and dangerous to the Jewish community. So we're seeing anti-Semitism, we're seeing violence, and we're seeing all sorts of events that should not be taking place. And to your point, we saw massive protests even reaching the White House just over the weekend. Given the horrors that we saw in the Holocaust, why aren't we seeing pro-Israel protests? Well, we, we are seeing pro-Israel protests, but the difference is that uh, Jewish, the Jewish community in the United States and elsewhere is, quite frankly, scared. They're seeing these pro-Palestinian demonstrators. As we started talking about, a, a Jewish man was murdered in California, apparently by a pro-Palestinian protester. So there are very strong concerns for safety. What we're not seeing is we're not seeing the government crack down on these pro-Hamas demonstrations. We're not seeing police take a more direct approach. We're not seeing arrests. We're not seeing the National Guard step in to protect the Jewish minority population as we did see them come in during BLM protests and also during the civil rights movement to protect African Americans. We're not seeing government action. And on that note, how much of that do you see bleeding into the political scene given that today's election day and next year is the presidential election? Inevitably, there is some bleeding in on politics, but fighting anti-Semitism is bipartisan. We can't allow it to become political. This is such an important issue. Whenever we're talking about racism and bigotry, we need to have unity and not make it about politics. So we're appreciative of everyone in elected office who's paying attention to this issue and doing what they can to stop the anti-Semitism that we're seeing. And on that note, you brought up how the Jewish community is feeling scared. What can people do to push back against this? What, what people can do is what they're already doing. And on college campuses, they're calling for administrators to act, to disband student groups that are aggressively anti-Jewish. They, they can file lawsuits when their civil rights are violated. That's what the Lawfare Project does. Uh, they, they can seek support from elected officials to in, enhance legislation that provides for hate crime penalties. But more importantly, we, we need to push for a change in narrative. The Jewish community is a minority community entitled to civil rights protections, and we can't allow ourselves to forget that and allow civil rights to be trampled on. 
And how does that start? Is that in our education system or broadly? What is the root of this? Juhinkit is systemic, so we do need to go back to school. We need to go back to the education system. We need to teach about minority rights. We need to teach how Jews are a minority, the, old, the world's oldest and most persecuted minority. We need to teach that it's not just the Holocaust. We have modern forms of anti-Semitism. If you start in a classroom, you can perhaps unlearn the hate that's being taught and live in a more civilized society. A lot at stake here. Well, Gerard Felitti, thank you so much for your time. No, thank you for your attention to this issue. It's been a month now since a man from Israel saw his wife and young children. They were taken hostage by Hamas during the October 7th attacks. Joined by the family dog, the survivor launched a one-man vigil that soon became a daily ritual for Israelis calling on leaders for the hostages' release. Here's his story. It's been over 31 days of waking nightmare for Avahai Brodich. 31 days since he last spoke to his wife or saw his three young children, aged 10, 8, and 4 years old. 31 days since the October 7th attacks by Hamas on Israel, which kidnapped and took his family hostage. It's been so long, I'm starting to lose it. I don't know in what situation they are in health-wise or, you know, they're being fed, taken care of. So I can only hope that everything's all right. Brodich's family was taken from one of the hardest-hit communities, Kafar Aza. They were hiding in a safe room with their neighbor's daughter, whose parents were killed. He had gone outside to see if he could help stop the gunmen, but they got separated. At first, he thought everyone but his dog was killed before he received confirmation they were taken. He started camping with his dog outside the Israeli Defense Ministry with a sign to remind the military, my family is in Gaza. Others have joined him in what's become a daily occurrence. All day, this is what I'm doing. I talk to people and uh, I tell them my story and my beliefs. And uh, I just keep on going, you know, and I... Uh, nighttime comes and I just fall asleep, you know. I Maybe I don't fall apart, but I just fall asleep, you know, from all this, I get so tired. So I just wanted them to see, you know, the decision makers, to know that I'm there and my family uh, is held hostage. So whenever they make their big decisions, they think about me and I think they are thinking about me right now. Uh, they can't ignore me. After a month, Brodich is tired of protesting but he says views of the war are changing. I think it has changed uh, a lot. You know, people uh, did change their views on this uh, conflict. Uh, everybody just wanted vengeance at first. Uh, I don't think, uh, you know, they wanted retaliation, which is human, I guess, but uh, I hope it ends, you know, it's just a cycle that keeps going on and on. Uh, and now I'm a part of it and my kids and wife are a part of it. And they shouldn't be. Welcome back. Another Facebook whistleblower, a former high-level engineer, testifies on how Facebook harms young children and how Facebook executives do little to nothing about it. NTD's Virginia Gibson has more.
you have put your career on the line to come forward. Former Meta engineer Arturo Behar was hired by Facebook specifically to protect children, among other things. While there, he discovered teens were experiencing serious levels of harm. In one study from 2021, he found 22% of 13 to 15-year-olds were bullied in the past seven days. Nearly 40% had been negatively compared to another person, and 13% had received unwanted sexual advances. Many have come to accept the false proposition that sexualized content, unwanted advances, bullying, misogyny, and other harms are unavoidable evil. This is just not true. We don't tolerate unwanted sexual advances against children in any other public context. Behar's findings suggest Facebook and Instagram are constantly harming millions of children. Senators brought up stories of children who had committed suicide, who had met drug dealers, pedophiles, and sex traffickers, all because of social media. Behar's own daughter among the victims. My 14-year-old daughter joined Instagram. She and her friends began having awful experiences including repeated unwanted sexual advances, harassment. She reported these incidents to the company, and it did nothing. Behar says he communicated his findings and recommended solutions to Facebook executives, including Mark Zuckerberg. But he said Zuckerberg ignored him and didn't implement his solutions. They've made a decision that it's not a priority to them because of uh, profit motive, have they not? in terms of what it's going to cost them in their business model if they have to interrupt it and monitor the content. I think that would be a wonderful question to ask Mark. It can speak to why they made these choices. It can only speak to the fact that they keep making these choices over and over again. Senator Lindsey Graham is on a mission to get rid of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. This would allow people to sue Meta over the content on its platform. If you could sue on behalf of your daughter, would you? I, I believe they just have to be held to account and being transparent. Okay. About well, one way of doing that is to sue them. Do you know you can't sue them under the current law? I did not know that. Those who oppose repealing Section 230 say it would create very harsh content moderation policies or even end social media itself. That's because the firms would be flooded by an overwhelming number of lawsuits. But Senator Graham and many other politicians say if the platforms are allowed to moderate content, they need to be accountable for the content. Virginia Gibson, NTD News. And now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with what's the only nine-win college football team not scheduled to play in a bowl game. That's right, Tiff. Officials from James Madison University, whose team is 9-0, have sent a letter to the NCAA petitioning them to be eligible for postseason play this year, which is their second in FBS competition. Now, the Dukes are one of just seven unbeaten teams left in college football, yet the only chance they have of going bowling is if there aren't enough six-win teams available. Their petition says, quote, the membership recognizes postseason participation as a fundamental element of the student-athlete experience. If relief is provided, our student-athletes would potentially have the rare opportunity to participate in the prestigious New Year's Six Bowl contest. Now, NCAA rules dictate that teams transitioning from FCS to FBS football 
must wait two seasons to be eligible for postseason play, thus the controversy. But the Dukes are already playing a full schedule in the Sunbelt Conference with a 6-0 mark thus far. They even have a win at Power 5 foe Virginia. And in NFL news, after scoring just six points last night and yet another slow offensive showing, the New York Jets may be getting the help they need sooner rather than later, as four-time MVP Aaron Rodgers was overheard on the field after the game saying, quote, give me a few weeks when asked about a return. The exchange appeared to be with Chargers safety Derwin James. Rodgers tore his Achilles two months ago just minutes into his Jets debut. The team has floundered in his absence, relying on a strong defense to keep up with a 4-4 record. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, no NBA games on this election night, but the NHL has 10 games, including one with winless San Jose. The 0-10-1 Sharks, the only team without a victory, look to finally get on the board tonight as they host the Philadelphia Flyers. And that's it for your sports news today. Tiff, back to you. If you have any news, tips, or feedback for the show, you can email us at ebeatingnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.